It has been a long-standing tradition for us to have a Thanksgiving Eve service to really prepare our hearts as we uh, gather together on the day of Thanksgiving to really orient our affections to the Lord Jesus, who is the ultimate gift to us. And as I mentioned in the email I sent out to the congregation uh, a few weeks ago, uh, this was the first year in maybe 15 years we didn't do anything for Reformation Day. Usually we have some kind of, of conference or, or do something for Reformation Day. And so uh, having this opportunity to gather, I wanted to combine those two things and uh, speak on the topic of giving thanks for a reformation of worship. Um, one of the, I think, maybe underemphasized aspects of the Reformation is that with a recovery of the true gospel came a recovery of true worship. And that is a heritage that we get to share in and we are, we are blessed by. And I will mention this, this won't so much be a sermon this evening, I hes hesitate to call it a lecture, but because it's not a sermon, that means I want you to participate. And before you get too excited, I'm going to be asking you questions. So if you look at the back of your bulletin, I have a little outline there, uh, three points. It looks like a sermon, right? Three points. Uh, the last point is the worship warnings that we must heed. So as we think about the false worship that was exposed during the Reformation, the gospel worship that was restored, I want you to be thinking about what are some of the relevant warnings that we need to heed as the 21st century American church? What are some of the warnings we should heed uh, from what we learn in the Reformation? Uh, if you uh, want to, I have two brief scripture readings, and so if you have a Bible, you can open it with me. The first is from Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, just one verse, verse 12. This is uh, God uh, speaking to Moses at the burning bush, and he is uh, promising that he will lead the people out of Egypt, that he will equip Moses for this task. And we'll see what the great end and purpose God has in mind in redeeming his people. Verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. The great end of redemption was that God would form his people into a worshiping community. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. I'll begin reading in verse 22, but you'll notice verse 18 referring to the Old Covenant, specifically to Mount Sinai. The writer says, For you have not come to what may be touched. And that's contrasted with what can't be touched in New Covenant worship, and yet the emphasis is the unseen realities that we experience in worship in the New Covenant far surpass the things that could be touched in the Old Covenant. So again, let's hear God's Word beginning in verse 22. 
that you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that, in the, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Pray with me briefly. Our great God and Savior, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do gather together this evening giving thanks to you for all of the blessings that you have been pleased to give to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we deserve none of them. We know that it is of your free grace that we receive them. And so we come with open hand to receive grace upon grace from our Savior. And Lord, we pray that you might impress upon us this evening the great privilege that we have of being called your people and being able each Lord's Day to enter your presence and to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray, Lord, that you might reinvigorate us, that you might give us a, a new desire for our Lord Jesus and for his worship. We pray that Christ, our Savior, would be lifted up among us this evening. We do pray in his great name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned already, we'll be thinking on this topic of the Reformation of Worship. And I want to begin with a syllogism. Some of you know what a syllogism is. If A is true, then B must be true. So here's the syllogism. The Bible teaches that the true gospel and the true worship, true worship of God are inseparable. Think about that. The true worship of God is inseparable with the true gospel. Here's B. That means that a war over the gospel is ultimately a war over worship. The Reformers fought a war over justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But that war, they understood that that war over the gospel was ultimately a war over worship. 
And this is really how the Bible unfolds to us. You think about the early chapters of Genesis, and we're introduced to two seeds. There's the seed of the serpent, and there's the seed of the woman. And in Genesis chapter 4, early on, we find the righteous line of Seth, that they began to call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, they began to worship the Lord. And that's really a great paradigm for reading the Old Testament, the unfolding story of these two seeds. Those who are saved by faith in the coming Messiah, the seed of the woman, or the, the seed of the serpent. That's really how the battle is framed for us, and hopefully our studies in Revelation are still fresh in your mind, but I want you to think about how this, this great war is framed for us in the first and the last book of the Bible. Think about Paul's commentary in Romans 1 on Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man. What does he say about that? He says they exchanged the truth of, of God for a lie and they substituted the worship of the creature for the worship of the creator. It's framed in terms of a battle over worship. And think back to our study through the book of Revelation. What is a prominent theme in the book of Revelation? There are two kinds of people, two kinds of worshipers. Anyone want to take a stab at how is that framed vividly for us in symbolism in the book of Revelation? You're either a worshiper of who or a worshiper of who? You're either a worshiper of the dragon or the beast symbolizing Satan or you're a worshiper of the lamb. And Revelation, as we saw, is a book filled with violence. It comes to us with this war imagery. Sinclair Ferguson has this very helpful insight. It's on the top of your bulletin there. He wrote, if you had asked the reformers what the battle was all about, they would not only said it was a battle over justification, they would have said it was a battle about worship. They saw that battle as part of an elongated war that had marked the people of God since the Garden of Eden. They understood that the narrative that ran through the pages of Scripture was a narrative that could be comprehensively understood through the lenses of seeing history as a war about the worship of God. And I think it's helpful for us to remember that Adam wasn't just some guy. He wasn't just a farmer. Adam was the representative head for all of mankind, and in that role, he was the original prophet, priest, and king. Adam was to declare the word of God to subsequent generations. You, you see him do that with his wife. He, he tells Eve what God said to him. He exercised his prophetic role. He was a priest. As we put the Bible together, it seems clear that Adam's role as priest was to expand that garden temple into the whole earth, so the whole earth was temple. And that means that Adam and Eve fell into sin 
over the issue of worship. And they were thrown out of the Garden in Eden, out of that first garden temple. They exchanged the worship of God for the worship of creatures. And the rest of the Bible is really the unfolding saga of that war and how God would redeem his people and bring them back into his presence through the cross of his son. Think about, you go to Genesis chapter 4 and the, the battle erupts again with Cain and Abel. What, what was the point of contention there? It was an issue over worship, over an offering. Think about the, the Tower of Babel. It was an issue over worship. The Tower of Babel was an attempt to pull God down from his throne and establish the worship of man. It recurs in the Exodus, where God frees his people out of Egypt from the false gods there that they might worship him. We see it in the prophets, when the prophets were almost always called, always sent to God's people to call them back to true worship. It's a, it's a running theme in the prophets that they would remind God's people that he is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. God sent the prophets to expose their sinfulness, to expose their degradation of worship, and to call them back to true worship. We see it come up again in the life of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, the climactic temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness, what was that a temptation about? Worship. That climactic temptation was about worship. Satan said, Jesus, you can have what you came into the world to gain, the kingdoms of this world. You can have them all without the cross, but at the high cost of worshiping the creature rather than the creator. We read in Matthew 4, 9, and 10, Satan says, All these, all these kingdoms I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Now, I'm going to stop apologizing for my jock analogies. It's just, you, okay, you get it. You ever, you ever watched a, some type of sporting event and your team seems like they're defeated, it seems like they lost, and they come back and they win the game, and you get chills and you're excited? That's how we should feel when we read that. Because where the first Adam was defeated in that battle over worship, Jesus was victorious. And he goes on to say, I will build my church. He will build his assembly. And that means that the whole vision of our Lord Jesus Christ was focused on redemption and worship. The goal he had in view in his dying and rising and ascending and sending the Holy Spirit was to create a worshiping community. A community wherein 
communion with God was restored and we could again enjoy the presence of God. That's what Hebrews 12 is all about. That's what the end of Revelation is all about. We, we thought about how beautifully the Bible begins with a garden temple and it ends with a garden temple in Revelation 22. Jesus died on the cross to redeem us and so that God might be rightly worshipped again. And that was one of the great burdens of the early reformers. They fought that battle over justification, how we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But they understood that the end goal of our salvation was that God be properly worshipped. That He be worshipped according to His word for, for His glory and for our satisfaction, for our well-being. And so in 1544, when John Calvin wrote his great work on the necessity of reforming the church, if you read that, he pinpoints these two issues as foundational. Recovering true, the true gospel and recovering true worship. The two are inseparably linked. Think about the book of, of Exodus. What's Exodus 1 to 24 about? Redemption. What's Exodus 26 to 40 about? Worship. God redeemed his people, and then he formed them into a worshiping community that they might glorify him and enjoy him. And I think that's a, a powerful reminder to us, and maybe even a rebuke to the 21st century American church where many Christians, even some of us, I know I was, for my whole life I was told that the great end of my God saving me was my personal salvation. It was all about me. And that has sadly had its negative effects where now worship Attending church, becoming part of a church is a matter of indifference or, or preference. It's not something that's viewed as very necessary. God does save us into a very personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but the great end and goal is that we might worship Him and glorify Him. And the Reformers rightly saw that. They saw that connection. You know, our denomination has its roots in the Scottish Reformation, and some of you have heard about the first and the second Scottish Reformation. And you see it clearly. The first Scottish Reformation was about recovering the true gospel. The second Scottish Reformation was all about recovering true worship. And so the Bible really unfolds that wonderful story of how the the paradise of pure worship that was lost in the Garden in Eden is restored in Jesus Christ through His sacrifice on the cross so that we again may know communion with Him and we may do that thing that we were created to do, worship Him. We won't be satisfied without it. And that's why we often rightly think of our worship services as a foretaste of heaven, a down payment 
of heaven. Because it gives us a taste of that final day when we are taken to be with Christ. And it will be our eternal occupation to worship him in spirit and in truth, without sin, without any hindrance, and to enjoy him forever. But I just want to briefly this evening think about um, how worship was reformed in the Protestant Reformation, uh, specifically in the 15 and 1600s. And first, as many of you know, there was a false worship that had to be exposed. And the first perversion of worship that the reformers confronted was that worship had become visual and sensual instead of biblical and spiritual. In Hebrews 12, we find that same contrast where what can be touched is contrasted with what can't be touched. And, and, and the whole argument of that letter is, is that what can't be touched is better. Because we have the Holy Spirit. Um, those Hebrew Christians had no building. They had, they had no more incense, no more priestly garments to look at. And the writer's saying, look, what we have in Jesus Christ is better. And one of the things that the Reformers confronted was that as the the word of God was neglected and the leaders of the church were ignorant of the word of God. Many of them were, were illiterate. There was no teaching of the word and all of the emphasis came to lay on what you saw. What you saw the priest wearing, what you saw the priest doing with his hands, his gesture. The focus was on what was seen. And if you think about it, even in the Roman Catholic view of the sacraments, grace is almost made into a tangible reality, something that can be infused to you. It was a way that God gave you tangible grace. And the Reformers obviously fought for the Word of God to be heard. Worship was never, even in the Old Covenant, worship was never about what was visible or what could be touched. And they understood that what had happened in the Garden of Eden and the, the false worship that it introduced, that it was happening all over again. Think about the serpent's temptation to Eve. What did he essentially say to Eve? Look, touch, taste. Forget about God's Word. Look, touch, and taste. In other words, there was a demeaning of God's verbal revelation and a relying on the visual and the sensual. There was a demeaning of God's verbal revelation and what He had promised and how much He had given and the good He intended for them. So there was a degradation of of worship, where the word was no longer heard, and the whole focus was on what was visible. But secondly, and, and this really followed, I think, naturally, is worship became vicarious, substitutional, rather than congregational. In other words, it was something that was done for you. It was done in front of you. It was really no different than watching a play. 
You go to a play, you, you watch, you kind of feel good when you leave. That's what worship was like. There was no participation, and that was really bound to happen because only the priests had the language of worship. Masses were said for you. And it denied the whole biblical notion that we are the people of God. We are a royal priesthood. And that worship is to be a participatory act. If we are saved into a covenant relationship with Jesus, into union and communion with Him, if it's a real relationship, then that relationship should be reflected in worship. And finally, worship became visual rather than verbal in terms of the proclamation of the Word. Worship had become very, very complex and had lost its simplicity. And if you would have read the manuals for the priests, they would have read like a script for a play. All the emphasis is on what you wore, where you moved, when you said this, when you said that. Robert Godfrey wrote, if there had been theological seminaries in the English-speaking world in those days, most of the courses would have been on hand actions and vestments and not on the action of God and the preaching of the Word and how to expound the Word because the simplicity of biblical worship had been rejected and replaced. And so the Word was was not preached, it was not read in a way that the people could understand. And as the Reformers exposed that false worship, there was a gospel worship that was then restored. There was a restoration of biblical and spiritual worship. We in Reformed circles often hear the term the regulative principle of worship, that idea that God for his glory and for our good, says, here, here is how you adore me. Here is how you worship me. That was articulated in, in the Reformation. And we're reminded that we can embrace the simplicity of new covenant worship because we have the Holy Spirit. And he shows us the unseen realities that we read of in Hebrews chapter 12. He he causes us to hear the voice of Christ in the Word. And again, that's the emphasis in Hebrews 12 that, you know, again, try to imagine going from the Old Covenant, having a priest dressed in all these beautiful vestments, all the incense, the beauty of the temple, and then you go and you're meeting in someone's living room, looking at a guy like me, and it just all seems so ordinary. And, and that's why the writer outlines. He says, look, this is the unseen spiritual reality that is going on. And it is infinitely better than what can be touched, what can be seen. And with that, there was a restoration of congregational and dialogical worship. There was a dialogue that was restored. There was a, a participation that was restored. The Reformers believed that everyone could and should hear the Word of God preached and taught in, in a way that they could understand and respond to. 
And I think the, the dialogical aspect of worship is seen most vividly in the Reformation with the recovery of the Psalms. It was common in the Reformation era that the Psalms were sung as the songbook of the church. And those Christians who were so starved, who had been so excluded from participating in worship, they delighted to be able to take the words of God on their lips and praise Him. John Calvin put together a, a psalm book for singing, and, and he said this. He said, It's calling upon God as one of the principal means of securing our safety and as a better and more unerring rule for guiding us in this exercise of worship cannot be found elsewhere than in the Psalms. And that's the church, in, especially in the 16th century, so appreciated the Psalms. They saw the relevance of the Psalter for their worship. It was a God-ordained, word-centered, Christ-mediated way for every believer to take part, to participate in worship and respond to God's Word with God's Word. Robert Godfrey said of uh, the Christians in the 1600s, he says, as the people of God, they lived in the Psalms. And finally, and I think most well-known, there was a reformation or a restoration of word-centered worship in the preaching of the Word of God. Men were trained again in the biblical languages and how to, how to exegete the Scriptures, how to expound on them, how to preach the Word of God in a way that people could understand. And the Reformation flourished under the simple preaching of the Word. When Luther was asked, you know, what brought about this powerful reformation, his reply was, the Word did it all. And friends, we should be thankful that this is part of our heritage. I think we need to be careful not to take it for granted, to be strive to be faithful, to be faithful worshipers, Understanding that bears a powerful witness. But finally, let's think about worship warnings we must heed. And here's where you have to participate. What warnings should we hear from the false worship that had to be exposed in the Reformation and from the true worship that was restored? In other words, are there any parallels? Are there any things that, that we should be warned about? Do we live in a, an image-driven society? I think much worship today has become visual and sensual. Rather than biblical and spiritual, we kind of chafe at the simplicity of worship. I remember the first time I came to an RP church, and you're kind of looking around, it's like, do they have found a brighter white to paint the walls? And <laughs> but the building doesn't matter. Because it's spiritual worship. We have the Holy Spirit. Now, what about how worship became vicarious? Someone else just performed in front of you. Any warnings we need to heed there? We can, we can, uh, we, we can enjoy 
harmony and worshiping with the word yeah that's funny i last lord's day almost because i i get to hear all of you better than you probably get to hear yourselves and you do sound wonderful and i almost said something but i i didn't i was worried about that very thing but, yeah i'll pray that you're you become worse singers um but yeah, I, I think it, it's a temptation for all of us just to show up at worship and not really be engaged, not treat it as a dialogue. And, you know, I have to say one of the things I so love about you as a congregation is there is a clear dialogue going on. Even though I'm, I'm the only one standing up here to preach, there, there's a dialogue. I can, I can sense an interaction. And, you know, I, I love it when Dave Fulcher actually says amen. It's like... It's like, Dave, you had to teach these Presbyterians. They could say amen. <laughs> but there, there is that dialogue. We, we, we need to come. We, in a way, we are passive because we're coming to rest in Christ, receive from him. That, that rest doesn't imply inactivity on our part. Um, I think what struck me as I thought about this is God has given us a visual and essential in worship. He's given us the sacraments. That's God's visual, things that we can sense, taste, touch, smell. And yet what is happening in the American church, we're creating our own visuals and ignoring God's visuals. Again, listen to Sinclair Ferguson. He... I think Sinclair Ferguson has an interesting perspective because this is a guy who pastored in Scotland and then came and pastored in the U.S. And so I think he, he maybe picks up on things that we don't. And he said, friends, if you ask the average evangelical Christian how much baptism has meant to them in the last two weeks of their lives and how much coming to the Lord's table has meant to them in the last three weeks of their lives, and they will wonder why you're even asking the question because we have invented our own visuals. And so understanding God's visuals according to God's word have become incidental to us. And, you know, we, we hear stories sometimes, and I think we find them hard to believe, but there are many Christian churches who just don't observe the sacraments anymore. And it's ignoring to their detriment the visuals that God has given to us. And I, could really, I pastored in another denomination before I came into the RPCNA. And I can remember when I would preach, if I preached longer than 15 minutes, I knew I had gone long because the worship leader would bring the whole worship band up behind me and quietly start playing. And that says something, that the preaching of the word is really not the center of the worship service. And I think we can, living in a visual culture, we can become enamored with the visual and the sensual. We can, we can chafe under the simplicity of this new covenant worship. Because it requires cultivation of our faith. It requires prayer. It requires that we prayerfully prepare for worship. So asking the Lord to give us the eyes of faith to see these wonderful, unseen spiritual realities. 
Let me quote Sinclair Ferguson again. He, he was talking about all these worship consultants that there are now. And he said he heard one guy ask, you know, what, you know what's, the quality of your, what's the quality of your morning worship? And Sinclair Ferguson said, I have, my, I have my litmus test for the quality of your morning worship. What's the attendance at your evening worship? Because if people came and they met with God and they heard Christ speak in his word, they wouldn't pass up another opportunity to be in his presence again. They couldn't go another week without having another opportunity to be in his presence. And I think, friends, and this is the last thing I'll say, I think we need to remember our worship has a powerful witness. As worship is, is downgraded, we, we can't claim that our Savior is wonderful and beautiful and glorious if we're not a people that are committed to worshiping Him. What does it say to a watching world when we try to tell them how wonderful Jesus Christ is and all that He has done for us, and they see us not worship Him? Our worship is a witness to the world. And our worship really empowers our witness because as we come into the Lord's presence every Lord's Day, we're reminded that we are sinners, and yet Christ reassures us that he has died for us, that he has forgiven us, that he is on our side, that he will equip us. And we go out better equipped with, with a greater zeal for Christ, wanting to share the gospel with others. Well, I'll go ahead and stop there. I'm not sure what grade level I'd give you for participation. I, I do think it depends on where I'm standing. If I was standing at a podium down there, I'll bet you it would have been, been more. The, but let's, let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you above all else for Jesus Christ, our great Savior, the one who so loved us that he took on our flesh and became like us, that he obeyed where the first Adam did not, and where he paid the penalty for our sins, that he might redeem for himself a people who are eager to worship him. We pray, Lord, that you might cause us to see the glory of Christ more clearly, you might make us better worshipers. For your son told us that you are seeking worshipers to worship you in spirit and in truth. Or give us the eyes of faith that we might behold the glory of Christ in our worship. That we might hear his voice and with zeal, Lord, that we might proclaim his name to the nations. Lord, we pray as we gather around tables tomorrow that you might bless our time, that it might be edifying and glorifying to you. And Lord, as we eat an overabundance of food and are satisfied, Lord, may we look to Christ who is the bread of life and be reminded of the great satisfaction that we have in him. Lord, we thank you for Christ and him crucified. We pray in his great name. Amen.